I'm Jorge Salazar with the Texas Advanced Computing Center. In 2017, the Stampede Supercomputer, funded by the National Science Foundation, completed its five-year mission to provide world-class computational resources and support staff to more than 11,000 U.S. users on over 3,000 projects in the open science community. But what made it special? Stampede was like a bridge that moved thousands of researchers off of soon-to-be decommissioned supercomputers while at the same time building a framework that anticipated the eminent trends that came to dominate advanced computing. Joining us on the podcast for a retrospective look at what made Stampede great is Dan Stanzione, Executive Director of the Texas Advanced Computing Center. Dr. Stanzione, welcome to the podcast. You're welcome. Glad to be here. I'd love to hear your perspective on kind of the early days before Stampede. Um, what do you remember most about the National Science Foundation solicitation back in 2010 for a new flagship supercomputer for its uh, TerraGrid program, which is now Exceed? It was an interesting time. We were super excited to see the solicitation when it came out. There had been a little bit earlier than that, in 2006, was when they'd really sort of rebooted how they funded resources and started some new programs. And our Ranger system that we were operating at the time was the first of sort of this new class of systems. Um, they had the Track 1 and the Track 2 systems um, that came up, and then Kraken came online at the University of Tennessee at Nix, um, became the second system. And so they had spun up sort of the first cohort. And at this point, when the solicitation that became Stampede came out, um, they'd gone through sort of the first four years. You know, Ranger was the oldest and first system, soon to retire through that process. And so it was sort of their first chance to sort of adjust course and see what was happening. And one thing that had been clear from the previous year is the investments probably wouldn't be sustained at that same level. So there were going to be less systems coming online than there had been in the past, which made the next one super important because it was going to have to take a huge amount of the load, right? You know, Ranger was going to come offline. Um, Kraken was aging and was going to come offline by the time we had Stampede into production. And a lot of the you know older sort of leftover systems from the TerraGrid days were also going away. So we knew as we were designing, you know, just to stay where we were, we had to inherit you know a huge amount of workload from the systems that were there. And at the same time, you could sort of see that architectural changes were coming and we had to move the community forward as well. And that was going to be a huge challenge because, you know, architectures and hardware change really relatively quickly, right? You buy a new computer every four or five years at any scale, right? You know, from desktop to supercomputer. So in four or five years, you can completely change what you do. Software doesn't work that way, right? You know, once you've built it, really, once you've started on it, you've made a bunch of decisions about how it's going to be structured. But, you know, often you're living with the decisions you've made in software for decades. So the, the changes happen much more slowly. And what we could see was we'd gone from, you know, with Ranger, we had four core processors, four of them on a board. So we'd gone from, you know, one processor on a node to a few processors on a node. But it was clear this trend was going to continue, either in sort of the GPU way, right, where they have lots of parallel processing elements, lots of cores essentially arranged with streaming memory, or in sort of the more traditional processor way, which is going to be lots of cores with cached local memory, where you try and reuse it a little better. But either way, that the programming model was going to have to change looking forward. So we wanted to both take on this sort of enormous responsibility of all of the old workload that was out there for all of the systems that were retiring, but at the same time, start putting pressure on people to modernize and go towards what we thought systems were going to look like in the future. So it was an exciting time. Mm -hmm. One way to think about this path to the future is like the many core architecture. Can you just talk a little bit about how it felt when you decided 
to go on that path? It was a difficult decision at the time. We had several different architectural paths that we considered um, and, and looked going forward. You know, again, GPUs were out there. There was sort of continue doing what we were doing. Um, there was this, you know, burgeoning sort of mini core look. Um, I think what settled the decision for us, and it's one that I'm still comfortable with what we did, given what we knew at the time and how we approached it, it was sort of a hybrid model, right? We built a system that used conventional processors to build up something that was bigger than Ranger and Kraken combined at the time, the two big systems in production. Um, so we knew that we'd have a, a stable and safe configuration that could take all of that workload that we were going to inherit and keep science moving forward on the system. The solicitation itself was actually divided into a base system and an innovative component. And for the innovative component, we went with um, what became known as the Intel Xeon Phi at the time. It was just called the Knight's Corner Processor. And it was really the first generation of those chips. So, of course, you know, included a certain amount of risk um, in going with that. And it was going to be on a coprocessor card, live as a coprocessor, an accelerator separate in the system. So that adds complexity to how to use it. But at the same time, we saw this trend toward mini core coming, right? And there's still arguments about how you organize cores and how big or small individual cores should be. Remains a debate, but... Certainly, we have a lot more cores now than we have then, and we're going to have a lot more in the future than we have now, right? So to me, at least personally, whether you liked Knight's Corner or not at the time, it was sort of a preview of what future architectures were going to look like five and 10 years out, right? So you had this chance to run on a safe and conservative system that we knew would work, yet use this forward-looking capability to start to get ready for the future in your codes. And that was important to us. And given that we were going to push people to change. And we knew it was going to be painful um, uh, to force people to change. And we still have a lot of that pain yet to come um, in future systems. But as I mentioned, the software is going to change very slowly. So we wanted to sort of do it incrementally. And with Knight's Corner and with this mini core approach, we were preserving as much of the programming model as we possibly could. You know, we still do this today with Stampede 2 and with platforms moving forward is write your code the same way but you need to put more focus on things you need to do well, right? We use MPI. We've always used MPI. We've used MPI for 20 years. You really need to use MPI. OpenMP for threading. Again, it's an idea that's been around for more than 20 years. Well, the idea has been around for more than 40 years, but the OpenMP implementation has been around for more than 20 years. But now you really need to use them together. It's sort of not optional anymore, right? We need to push people down this path. You know, one of the things that happened with that that we sort of forecast and, and did happen was as people tried to get their code to run well on Knight's Corner, all the changes they were making actually made it run well on the traditional Xeon processors too, right? Um, so uh, rather than coming up with this new special version of the code for the machine, you were just making your code better <laughs> to run on the machine. And it was going to run it better on future processors as well. Can I follow up on that a little bit? We talked about the risks. What would you say would be like the biggest payoff from Stampede? Let me take the risk part separately. The biggest payoff with Stampede, of course, is what we did with it. Over the four or now a little over four years that we have run the system since it started, we've just had an enormous amount of science productivity and supported an incredibly diverse group of users over that time period and thousands and thousands and thousands of them in both all the projects that we thought we would have, the traditional computational projects, and in sort of new projects we never really would have dreamed. And, you know, we've done everything from designing rockets to the gravitational wave work that we've done with LIGO um, and supporting their observation of gravitational waves was remarkable. And doing data analysis for the Large Hadron Collider and in doing more simulations than we can count. Over 8 million, I believe, at this point, 
real production jobs for real users across thousands of projects. And so that's far and away the biggest accomplishment. But when you look back at sort of executing the project from the risk perspective, you know, there was a lot of risk going in. And, you know, some of the things I'm particularly proud of is these projects evolve over time. That's really only natural, right? When we're writing a proposal for these machines, we're doing it on hardware that doesn't yet exist. You know, we wrote that proposal starting in the late 2010 for a system that we were going to deploy in the beginning of 2013 and run until now in 2017. Seven years is a long time in IT to forecast the future. So normally things change, but remarkably few did. You know, we stuck to the schedule in our original proposal. We wrote that we would begin operations on January 7th of 2013. And we did (laughs) on January 7th of 2013 start operations. We delivered in almost every detail, exactly the system that we proposed with exactly the set of capabilities we would say it had. You know, and we had this risky new, would it ever be delivered Knight's Corner processor? And it was there. It was delivered and it got used during the life of the system and has now, you know, graduated to the next generation with Knight's Landing that we've incorporated. One of the things I'm proud of is that we were able to execute both on time and on budget exactly the system that we had forecast that we would deliver got delivered. What's the most important thing that you want people to know about the Stampede supercomputer? The one thing I'd want people to remember about Stampede, and it's what you remember really about any supercomputer, is that although it brought a lot of new technologies to the fore um, and was a remarkable technical wonder in and of itself, but the reason we do them is to be instruments for science. And if you don't deliver the science for people doing research in advancing technology and advancing competitiveness and making people's lives better, then you haven't really delivered. You've just built a really big, cool toy. And I think the most important thing about Stampede was not that it was big and cool, but it's that it really delivered for a huge number of people over its lifespan and kept the nation moving forward in innovation. Here to speak more about the innovations of Stampede is Bill Barth, Director of High Performance Computing and a research scientist at the Texas Advanced Computing Center. The biggest thing was that Intel decided to move the I.O. controller, the PCI Express controller, from basically out on the motherboard remotely somewhere onto the chip. And so that simplified things a little bit for the overall system architecture for Dell and for Intel. And it enabled there to be extra bandwidth between the chips because it freed up some other resources. And so users may have seen that if they had to move data back and forth between the memories that are associated with each of the two chips that are on uh, Stampede node. And it also made more PCI Express lanes available for peripherals like GPUs and mics. And so we could have a Mellanox FDR InfiniBand card and a mic or a GPU in a node all at full bandwidth or two mics or a GPU and a mic, um, all of which we have available in Stampede nodes um, throughout the system. So that was a, a nice innovation from Intel that gave them some additional features. Um, So that was probably the biggest thing. Uh, The second thing was that Sandy Bridge was the first place where they introduced the AVX instruction set, and they doubled the width of the vector instruction from prior chips. So we got a 256-bit wide instruction, and that sort of doubled the theoretical performance that was available. Um, And some users would have taken advantage of that as well. In what ways did Stampede change the way scientists code for supercomputers, um, such as moving toward code vectorization and also um, utilizing this open MP runtime environment. Yeah, I think Stampede gave people sort of the first opportunity where they had to have 
a lot of vectorization and some sort of MPI plus something. Um, and I think the community is moving to some sort of threading model like OpenMP for the plus something part of MPI plus. And so Stampede gave people the first large scale opportunity to do that. And if they had the personnel resources to start on that kind of work, Stampede gave them that opportunity. In some cases, there were libraries made available on the system that they were already using that had some ability to use the mic in an offload capacity. The Intel math kernel library, the MKL, has an automatic offload capability inside it. And so if you were a user of the MKL, you could get access to the mic transparently and not necessarily even know you were doing it. You could change a couple of configuration variables in your environment before you submitted your job and suddenly you were using the mic and that might have been advantageous. Um, so we did that for users of R and MATLAB and Python and some other scripting languages that are already using the MKL on the CPU side. Um, on other systems, we could make it available to them on the mic transparently, um, such that they didn't even have to know it was there. And we saw some use of that on Stampede. I hope that people remember that Stampede was basically the workhorse of the NSF Open Science Computing Program for its extended lifetime. Um, and that Stampede 2 should continue that legacy. Stampede was one of the first systems to employ at large scale the leading edge computer networking system of a four data rate InfiniBand network. Here to talk more about Stampede's FDR InfiniBand is Tommy Minyard, Director of Advanced Computing Systems at the Texas Advanced Computing Center. Stampede was kind of an interesting follow-on project to Ranger, which was our first NSF Track 2 system. That one at the time was uh, InfiniBand, but it was only single data rate. Of course, five years after we had deployed Ranger, the technology had advanced quite substantially. The biggest thing on the InfiniBand fabric for our point of view is it provides great bandwidth. With the 14 data rate, we can get 56 gigabits a second uh, of bandwidth to each of the nodes. And it also decreases the latency. They've improved latency. And for large-scale MPI applications running in parallel and communicating simultaneously, latency is really key. In fact, it's one of the major factors in Amdahl's law and the equation for parallel scaling. So in terms of the FDR InfiniBand network, really the big innovative part was the fact that it was very low latency and one of the largest scales at the time we deployed Stampede. Uh, it was 6,400 nodes plus all the storage servers, also the management network and support servers were all connected by InfiniBand. For us, the InfiniBand not only does the MPI traffic, but it also does the storage traffic. So we run our Lustre file systems over the InfiniBand network. And what that provides us is very high bandwidth to be able to do the I.O. in support of the large-scale parallel computations. So in terms of innovation, it was more of an incremental improvement over Ranger and previous InfiniBand systems. But, you know, we were one of the very first large-scale FDR systems. Uh, there's been many more much larger than us now uh, that have been deployed out there. But we were kind of the one of the groundbreaking and, of course, helped improve the uh, MPI through the Invapitch and communication layers uh, on the InfiniBand uh, networks. And, of course, now we are evaluating other networks. They have uh, new, faster EDR uh, InfiniBand networks. Uh, we do have that in installed in Hakari, uh, one of our systems that was recently deployed. Um, but we're also exploring OPA, an Omnipath architecture from Intel. It also provides similar bandwidths as InfiniBand. Um, and again, it's an incremental improvement. And we've also deployed that at small scale, about 500 nodes and comparing the, the, the two networks. So, um, but for our real computations, you know, it, it's critical to have a high speed, low latency network to be able to scale and use all the nodes simultaneously for running a single application. 
that's really the big innovation from our point of view. And we want to keep leveraging the speeds and improvements in bandwidth technologies and keep up with the, the latest trends because we know that as soon as we deploy Stampede 2, OPA, there'll be a new version, there'll be faster networks. And of course, we'll be exploring those as they become available. How did the networking of Stampede help scientists uh, do better research? It's not that it really helps them to do research, but one thing we don't want, we don't want the network to get in way of their computations. So, you know, we want them to be able to get their science done easily. And so that's one of the reasons we've leveraged a lot of the commodity technology and standard MPI stacks so that users can transition between the systems and not have to worry. The main factor for Stampede was the fact that we were able to scale up much larger than we ever have in the past. Because we were able to drive down the latencies, that means we could run a much a uh, larger scale simulation uh, more efficiently than we could on the previous generations of InfiniBand fabrics. And so from the user's point of view and the scientists doing the research, they could run bigger problems, solve their problems in a faster period of time because they could use more computational resources. And of course, you know, with the processors also improving in speed and technology, the InfiniBand network has to keep up. You know, it's important for us to make sure we keep a balance between memory bandwidth, I.O. bandwidth, interconnect bandwidth. Um, and unfortunately, the flops has been increasing on the node counts quite drastically, but the rest of the components haven't been keeping up. Well, they're addressing that now with new technologies, high bandwidth memories, and of course, increasing the interconnect speeds to try to keep up. But even so, the flop rate has increased so drastically that uh, uh, unfortunately, it's caused the bottlenecks to be in the network side in a lot of cases. And so for our researchers, you know, we want to make sure to improve that and make it easier for them to continue to scale up and, and build bigger and larger systems to start to explore problems that they haven't been able to run currently. You've been listening to Tommy Minyard, Bill Barth, and Dan Stanzione of the Texas Advanced Computing Center. For Tech, I'm Jorge Salazar.